Amen. Thank you, worship team. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to see you all. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. The book of Colossians, chapter 2. We are in a series focusing on Lent. It's the 40-day period where the church prepares for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It's a time of repentance, a time of fasting, a time of opening ourselves uh, to God in a, a more pronounced way. And today we're going to be focusing on one of the aspects of the cross, one of my favorite aspects of the cross called Christus Victor. Uh, the first week was about the seriousness of sin and the scandal of the cross. Last week was about the cross as blood sacrifice. This week we're talking about the theme, the motif of Christus Victor, that is Christ the victorious one, Christ the victorious one. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In verse 15, we're going to be focusing a lot on that verse there. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we open ourselves to you again as we come under the hearing of your word. And Lord, as your gospel is proclaimed and your good news is announced, may the kingdom of God break in our midst into our own souls, into this space, and Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive every gift you have for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. At some point in our lives or another, we will have this deep feeling of being trapped. All of us at some point or another in life would feel Trapped, trapped in a situation that we can't get out of in our own strength. Some time ago, I was reading an article about a 12-year-old boy who was trapped, pinned under a car. And the weight of the car was too much for him to get out of in his own strength. In his own strength, he could never free himself from the weight that was on him. And just like any little boy would or any kid would in that moment, when the car was pinned over him, he screamed for his mother. And when the mother of the child heard the scream, it says that she ran over to the boy and it says that she was able to lift the car a couple of inches off the ground so that the young boy was able to slide out and survive. In the article, it says that medical experts have called this kind of behavior fight or flight syndrome, where the body releases a surge of adrenaline, which causes ordinary humans to have a kind of superhuman strength to temporarily save the life of a loved one 
or to flee from a dangerous situation. And had it not been for his mother, this boy would have been trapped. There's so many ways to look at the cross, but any perspective that does not take into consideration the truth that God was lifting us up out of the trap of sin, lifting us up out of the trap of death, lifting us up out of the trap of the evil one is missing one of the more important aspects of it. You can't understand the cross of Jesus without seeing how it is the power of God to release us from the trap of the evil one, from the trap of sin, from the trap of death, from the trap of the devil. And so today we're going to look at the cross in relation to powers and principalities that often keep us trapped. In Colossians, if you want to understand the book of Colossians, you can understand it in one word, and that one word is the word supremacy, that Jesus Christ has supremacy over all things. Jesus is supreme over the church, and Jesus is supreme over the world, and Paul is making that crystal clear in chapters 1 and in chapters 2. In chapter 1, he says Jesus is the head of the church. He has supremacy over the church. But Paul wants to make clear that Jesus is not relegated to just the sphere of the church, that Jesus is not just Lord over the church, he's also Lord over the world and has supremacy over the world as well. And in chapter 2, he explains how this is so, and he addresses us, uh, letting us know that the cross of Jesus was a definitive moment that something happened cosmically where the supremacy of Jesus was established. And while he was dying on a cross in some remote hill in ancient Israel, the entire universe was about to be changed. And so in verse 13, Paul offers one of the more comprehensive explanations of what was happening with Christ and what God was doing through Christ on the cross. And in in these three verses here, we see powerful truth before us. In verse 13, Paul says, he uses different language to talk about the different things that were accomplished. He says, on the cross, God made you alive. Isn't that wonderful? I love, I've heard it said that Christianity and the cross is not about God making bad people good or good people better. That fundamentally, the cross is about God making dead people come alive. Christianity is often relegated to bad people becoming good or good people becoming better, but fundamentally, it's about dead people coming alive. And so Paul says, God made you alive. Then he says, he forgave us all our sins. What a wonderful word there. Not he forgave us some of our sins. He forgave us all our sins. Then it says, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. That is, whatever, was, whatever condemnation that was coming against you, it was nailed to the cross. And then he moves from us, how we've been forgiven, how we've been released, to addressing something larger. He goes from the micro to going to the macro and says, he starts talking about the powers. And he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And I want to explore this passage right here, this verse right here. And this will change the way we live in the world. This will change the way we pray if we grab this. This will change the way we witness to the world. This will change the way we are related to each other if we can grasp the truth of verse 15. Paul says, there are powers in the world, authorities in the world, principalities in the world, and these powers are armed and dangerous. 
They're armed and dangerous. And so Paul uses two words when he talks about powers and authorities, and those two words in Greek can be seen in three different ways. When he says powers and authorities, the first way of seeing it is he's talking about demonic spiritual beings. That's one way of seeing the word powers and authorities. Another way of seeing it in the Greek language is he's talking about earthly authorities, that is kings, rulers, governors, empires, kingdoms. But what most would say is really to understand powers and authorities is really to take those two different categories and to converge them into one. That the powers and authorities are the convergence of spiritual powers in individuals, spiritual powers in ideologies, spiritual powers in institutions. And so if I could say it this way, when Paul talks about powers and principalities, powers and principalities are the evil spiritual forces that take root in individuals ideologies and institutions leading to a life and culture of fear and death resulting in being cut off from God and each other. I know that's a lot, (laughs) but that's what Paul is essentially saying with powers and authorities. They are evil spiritual forces that take root in individuals, take root in ideologies, take root in institutions, leading to a life and culture of fear and death, resulting in being cut off from God and from each other. And Paul is saying that there is an enemy out there, brothers and sisters, that is against all that is good with the world. And so the New Testament, in the New Testament, we see Jesus consistently in conflict with powers, in conflict with evil spirits. And whether the evil spirits found uh, an individual or whether an evil spirit found an institution, Jesus was consistently battling powers and principalities. The religious institutions of Jesus' day cultivated a culture of fear, cultivated a culture of death, which cut people off from God and cut people off from each other. And so when Paul writes about the powers, he's saying, listen, these powers are real. And these powers are armed and dangerous. And so Paul notes this because he wants to give a comprehensive perspective as to how to understand problems in the world, as to how to understand the evil that we experience in the world. And Paul is not just writing for the church in Colossae 2,000 years ago. His words are important for us today. In a very real way, there are people who are in the grip of evil spiritual powers in our world. And whether it comes in the form of self-destructive behaviors and self-destructive addictions, or whether it comes in the form of destructive behaviors towards others, the powers and authorities are very real. There are ideologies that are destructive. Every institution has powers and principalities at work. That there's a collective spirit that somehow overtakes you. This is what happens when you go to work tomorrow, doesn't it? You had a great time on Sunday. You were worshiping. You were putting on the armor of Christ. You were feeling great. And then five minutes into your job, you're acting like Satan. I mean, I mean, just five minutes. Something overtook you, as it were. A collective spirit, as it were, which, kind, which, which can absorb you, which can overpower you. And it's in every uh, industry. In every aspect of life, whether you're talking about the education world, whether you're talking about the economic world, whether you're talking about the political world, whether you're talking about the religious world, whether you're talking about the entertainment world, powers and authorities are active. 
When you look at Hollywood and the Me Too phenomenon, when you look at the church globally and the sexual abuse that's widespread, when you look at the justice system and mass incarceration, you cannot understand the fullness of evil without grasping the realities of the powers. And this is what I want to get across to us today, just a, a couple of important things as to why it's important for us to have a theology of powers and principalities and to recognize their existence. Paul wants us to know this because when, when we recognize powers and principalities, it helps us recognize the superhuman nature of evil. And what I mean by superhuman, I'm talking about this notion that, that evil is not just a human doing and evil is not just a spiritual doing. That evil is the, the convergence, the combination of human sin and evil spiritual powers working in tandem, working together, creating a source of evil in the world. And Paul says, if you want to get to the source of evil, you have to understand the superhuman nature of it. Now, church people just like to focus sometimes on just the spiritual part of it. And non-church people like to focus on just the human part of it. But if you're only dealing with the human part or only dealing with the spiritual part, you're missing the ways that human sin and evil spiritual forces come together. And so Paul's saying, if we're going to have any shot at this, we better hold on to the superhuman nature of evil. But beyond Paul just helping us recognize the nature of evil, by Paul recognizing the existence of powers and principalities, Paul is reminding us of our, secondly, of our human limitations to adequately defeat it. He lets the church know that these powers and principalities are forces to be reckoned with. He lets the church know that we cannot adequately in our own strength, in our own education, through, our, through whatever skills God has given us, individually or collectively, through our innovation, through our education, through our money, that whatever resources we have, that we are still inadequate to deal with the evil of our day. That even though society has made progress in some areas, it often feels like the more things change, the more things stay the same. We've made technological advances and such, and yet the world is still as violent as ever. There's still division and hostility. There's still things happening all over the world. And so in one sense, it does feel like things are progressing. And in another sense, it feels like the things are staying the same. The more things change, it seems, the more things stay the same. And so left to our own devices, left to human ingenuity and human innovation and human strength, the world will remain in the same place. Why? Because we cannot deal with the powers in our own strength. Left to our own devices, we're still stuck in sin. Left to our own devices, we will not make the world what it needs to be. Left to our own devices, war and violence will continue to dominate. Left to our own devices, division and fragmentation is our reality. But Paul is saying this, even though, uh, even though we might feel that we're left to our own devices, God has not left us to our own devices. And he says, Paul, Paul says, although we cannot defeat the powers, someone has already defeated them. And so in verse 14, Paul says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
And the language that Paul uses here is military language. It's, it, it's, it's a language that's very important for us to hold. He sees Christ as the victorious one. The powers are armed and dangerous, but Jesus has triumphed over them, making them a public spectacle. And when Paul writes these words, he says public spectacle, he's, he's referring to ancient Roman military language to, 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 to let the people know what truly is happening when Jesus died on the cross. New Testament scholars say that the phrase public spectacle refers to a victory parade where a conquering Roman emperor or a general would return into the capital city with the spoils and prisoners of war before a cheering crowd. And so the, the, the army would go out, defeat someone else on their territory, and then come back to their city with a crowd of people cheering them on, saying, we are victorious. Paul is saying, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he made a public spectacle out of the evil powers and principalities that exist in our world. Think of this in terms of a, of a, of a sports parade. After, after someone wins the Super Bowl, after someone wins the World Series, after someone wins the NBA championship, after someone wins whatever, none of my teams ever do it, but whoever someone wins, there is a parade. And they come back with the, 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 the trophy. They come back and there are people cheering and there are people that are shouting. Something has, we have triumphed over our enemy, triumphed over our opponent. This is the language that Paul is using. But he's saying Jesus has triumphed over sin, triumphed over death, triumphed over the devil, triumphs over the powers. And so when you look at the Bible, we see that the core issue is not whether we defeat the powers, that issue has already been settled. The gospel is the good news that God was at work in Christ to overcome the powers in our world. And this is nothing new in the ministry of Jesus. Because all throughout Jesus' life, he was overcoming the powers. Every time Jesus healed someone, he was overcoming the powers. Every time Jesus casted out a demon, he was overcoming the powers. Every time Jesus forgave someone, he was overcoming the powers. Every time Jesus welcomed a sinner, he was overcoming the powers. Every time Jesus welcomed an outsider, he was overcoming the powers. Jesus, from the day he was born, was overcoming the powers. It was just on the cross where he makes it final and disarms the powers and principalities. And so Jesus Christ doesn't die just to forgive us of our sins. Jesus Christ dies to disarm the powers and principalities to destroy the works of Satan, to destroy powers and principalities that exist in our world. And it's important that we hold on to this truth. It was Gustav Aulin, the theologian, who, who wrote a lot about this theme of Christus Victor, Christ the Victorious One, where he writes that the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. And the powerful thing about this, the cross is that the powers are defeated, although they look victorious. This is the paradox of the cross. They, they look, it looks like they're winning. It, it, it looks like they are victorious. But it is the paradox of the cross that is actually Jesus who's victorious. It looks like he's losing. But in all reality, he is victorious. And he triumphs over the powers in at least two ways. The first way that Jesus triumphs over the powers is Jesus doesn't resort to the tactics of the powers. 
Paul doesn't say that Jesus overcame the powers by having a, a stronger army. He doesn't overcome the powers by having more weaponry. He doesn't overcome the powers by having better artillery. He says that he, he has disarmed the powers and it comes very simply through his suffering, sacrificial love. And so in the cross, Jesus was fully enacting what he talked about throughout his entire ministry. That the evil powers of the day are not defeated by throwing more evil their way. This is how the world operates. The world operates that th there's a country that we don't like. So let us use their same tactics to get rid of them. But what that does is it multiplies evil. There will always be another nation with more weapons of mass destruction. And we can throw whatever we want. But when you throw evil at evil, evil just multiplies. Jesus does not use the weapons of the world to deal with sin, to deal with evil. He has another way. He absorbs it in himself. And it is through sacrificial suffering love that Jesus defeats evil. Let me explain it this way. Yesterday, I, I saw Black Panther. Yesterday, I saw Black Panther. You know it's about to get real right now, brothers and sisters. And without giving too much away, no, no spoilers alert here, no spoilers here. But the superhero suit that Black Panther, King T'Challa, is wearing is made of this substance called vibranium. And in Marvel Comics, the universe of Marvel Comics, vibranium is the strongest substance you can find. And it's powerful for many reasons, but there's one reason why vibranium is powerful. Vibranium can absorb all kinds of energy that comes its way. And so whenever someone would shoot at Black Panther, whenever someone would kick Black Panther, whenever someone would punch Black Panther, he would absorb all that energy into his body, and then it would be redistributed out to address the enemies who are attacking him. They could hit him with everything they had, but vibranium is such a powerful resource, it would absorb it and then redistribute it out to his enemies. And as I saw him operating with his vibranium suit, I thought about Jesus. I thought about Jesus. I thought about Jesus. I thought about him. And this is what I thought. I thought that on the cross, something happened on the cross. While Jesus didn't have a vibranium suit on, he had on the strongest substance known to the universe. That substance is sacrificial, suffering love. And so Jesus was able to absorb the lashes on his body. Jesus was able to absorb the nails of a crown on his head. Jesus was able to absorb the nails in his hands. He was able to absorb the condemnation that came his way. He absorbs it into his body. Sin enters into his body. But he, but he uses that same power to redistribute it out to overcome powers and principalities in the world. That's how you watch a movie, brothers and sisters. That's how you watch a movie, brothers and sisters. And so he takes it in his body. And it's something better than vibranium. It's the love of God. The sacrificial, suffering love of God that absorbs sin, that absorbs condemnation, that absorbs the wickedness and the evil of our society, and he redistributes it out. To such a degree that powers and principalities are triumphed over, not by the weapons of warfare, but by the weapons of the kingdom of God. 
And so the powers are defeated. And not only does Jesus defeat the powers through his suffering love and by absorbing sin, he also, what, what many in the church would say throughout the centuries, in Eastern Orthodoxy throughout the centuries, Jesus would die, but his work, his work wasn't done. That in some traditions it says Jesus at that point had more work to do. Jesus would go into the underground as it were. And Jesus would go as it were, whether it happened literally or whether it happened metaphorically. I think we need to hold this image in our mind. It says that the tradition says that Jesus would go to hell to liberate the captives. Now, whether it happened that way or whether it's metaphorical, you just have to hold on to that image. And one of the images that's been helpful for me this week is an Eastern Orthodox icon that explains what happened. And it's called the, the harrowing of hell. The harrowing of hell. The word harrow means the distress. The hell, which usually causes a lot of distress for people, is now distressed because Jesus has come. Hell usually, usually disturbs a lot of people, but now Jesus has died and now hell is disturbed. Jesus brings all hell to hell. <laughs> And in this Eastern Orthodox icon, we see a couple of things on it. We see Jesus standing on golden bars, and the golden bars are the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, which has been broken and torn apart. They're keys in this icon, in this portrait, uh, that are floating in the abyss below, which symbolizes that the prison doors are open. There's an old man and an old woman who Jesus is grabbing their hands in Eastern Orthodox tradition. They would say, that is Adam and that is Eve in chains until Jesus comes. And what the, the icon is basically saying is this. It is Jesus in his death and in his subsequent resurrection that he is lifting up all of humanity, that he is raising us up out of death into life. That through his forgiveness, through his grace, through his compassion, through his power, through his authority, he is raising up all of humanity. He is the victor over sin. He is the victor over death. He is the victor over the powers. And Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, this is our reality. He's writing to this church from prison. He's saying, this is our reality. And I want to remind us as well that this is our reality as well. That Jesus Christ is victorious. That the evil one's power has been broken. And this has so many implications for our lives. The cross reminds us that the powers are defeated. And because the powers are defeated, we now have the power to demonstrate this reality. When you look at the cross and see how Jesus is victorious, this is to change our life. And the way we live in the world. Christ as the victorious one is important because it is through his cross and through his death that we're able to see our defeats and our losses and our so-called failures differently. It looks like Jesus is losing from the human eye when he's on the cross. It looks like he's defeated. It looks like his ministry is over. And yet because he's the victorious one, he's able to, to take what looks like a loss and that actually be, be, be the place where God was about to demonstrate victory. When we see our failure in that light, when we see the losses that come to us, 
when we see the pain that comes our way, we're able to see it in a different light now. Because Christ is victorious, there is no pain, there's no loss, there is no sin that has the last word. There's no failure that has the last word. Your life is not identified by that any longer. It has no power you over any longer. Sin doesn't have the last word. Why? Because Christ is victorious. And when we attach our lives to Jesus in faith, his victory becomes our victory. His power becomes our power. He, he, his, his life becomes our life. And so we are to see our failures, our, our mistakes, our losses much differently because Christ is victorious. This, this passage is to change the way we pray. We, we are, brothers and sisters, we are to pray not with fear. We are to pray with authority. Pray, Jesus Christ has disarmed the powers. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's almost as if Jesus knew. He says, listen, I'm going to teach you how to pray, and the powers are going to be disarmed, and your duty now is to pray for the kingdom of God, the power of God, the rule of God, the reign of God to become a reality on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just pray to ask God to do some stuff for us. We are to pray to declare to the powers of the world that he is victorious. This is why we pray for the sick. This is why Christians pray for the sick. Because we believe, yes, sickness might be here, but we believe that he has disarmed the powers. And so we're going to trust God and believe God to manifest his power, to manifest his grace, to manifest his love in the healing of lives, in the healing of bodies. This is why we pray. This is why we, we, we keep Sabbath, why we're able to rest. The, the, Christ is victorious. Our identity is found in his victory now. Our identity is not found in what we produce any longer. Our identities are not found in how we perform. Our identities are not found in what we achieve. Our identities is found and wrapped up in his victory. This is why we can rest. This is why we can Sabbath, because he is victorious, and this is where our identity comes from. And so Jesus is victorious. Our lives are attached to him. Yet at the same time, some of you might be thinking, there's still war, there's still violence, there's still sickness. How do we reconcile this? He's victorious, but my marriage is failing. He's victorious, but my body is sick. He's victorious, but I lost my job. He's victorious. How do you hold on to the tensions that Jesus Christ is victorious and at the same time that there's trouble in the world? Well, theologians have used a phrase that I found very helpful. And this is a phrase to, to just help us to make sense of the victory of Jesus and the ongoing trouble in the world. And the, very, the phrase is a very simple phrase that theologians have used, that the kingdom of God is already but not yet. It's already but not yet. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. Now, the, the, the challenge with Christians is we live our lives after the comma. We live our lives, we live a not yet spirituality as opposed to living an already spirituality. And Jesus wants us to live in the already while making space for the not yet. Most of us live in the not yet and make no room for the already. But Jesus has already come. The kingdom of God came. He dies and disarms the powers. He resurrects in, in power. 
And so the kingdom of God is already here. But it's not yet. But it's already here. So let's focus on the already. And when the not yet happens, okay, there's not yet here. That's why we wait for his return. That's why we wait for him to come back. We said, Lord, you, you came one time. Your kingdom was already here. And we wait for you to make all things new. We wait for you to fully do away with darkness. We wait for you to fully deal away with sickness. We wait for you to fully deal, do away with death. But on, as we wait, Lord, would you help us to live in the already? And the already is manifested in at least in our relationships towards one another and in our mission. Already. In our relationships one, towards one another, we demonstrate or we are to demonstrate in word and in deed that Jesus Christ has disarmed the powers. And this has so many implications for our relationships and the way we, we relate to each other. One of the ways that the powers remain having authority over us is when we don't recognize that, first of all, Jesus has disarmed the powers, and secondly, that our battle is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities. It's helpful whenever you are in a conflict with someone and a situation needs to be resolved, especially if it's a Christian brother, especially if it's a Christian sister, that you walk into the conversation and you say, can, can we agree just for a moment that you're not the enemy? What if we just did it that way first? What if we said, can we, can we agree that, that we're caught in a crossfire, that there are powers and principalities at work right now? Can we agree, yes, I got a problem with you, but, can I, but, but you're not the enemy. This is not a denial of anger. This is not a denial of sadness. This is not being emotional robots. But it's recognizing there are other realities in our world. Some of us, we've had conversations with people where the conversation, it was about something small, and then it just went downhill. And how did that small thing become this big thing? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities as well. How is it that there's such a disproportionate response to an issue that should have been resolved pretty easily? Well, there are powers and principalities in our world that we've been shaped by, that's in our ideologies, that's in our thinking, that's in our history, that's in our trauma. And so in our relationships, when we... Uh, Greg Boyd said it this way, a theologian, he, he said that one of the main reasons we're so quick to engage in human warfare is because we're so slow in engaging in spiritual warfare. Instead of pillaging the enemy's house and taking it back for God, we pillage each other. And so darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can do that, as Dr. King would say. And so the powers of darkness have one goal, to cut you off from God and to cut you off from each other. And to the degree that we're able to say, there is a, another battle that's happening here that my eyes cannot see is the degree to, we, to which we will resist the powers and the principalities. When we, when we love one another, when we choose the way of listening intently towards one another, when we, when we believe the best in one another, when we choose the way of not making assumptions, when we, when we offer forgiveness and ask for forgiveness, when we choose the way of service towards one another, what we're doing is we're demonstrating that Jesus Christ is victorious over the powers and that our lives are victorious over the powers as well. 
And so in our relationships, we are called to demonstrate in word and in deed. This is why we have uh, stuff called emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy relationships. We need all the help we can get. There are powers and principalities coming against us. And this EHS coursework is not just getting a little bit of more self-awareness and a little healthier relationship. We're coming against powers and principalities. We're coming against rulers and authorities. And in our relationships, we're called to demonstrate that Jesus has disarmed the powers, but not just in our relationships, finally, in our mission. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet And yet we're still supposed to live in the already of the kingdom. And our mission is to take ground. Our mission is to advance the kingdom of God. Our mission is to bear witness to the kingdom of God. When we pray for the healing of the sick, we're saying to the powers, Jesus Christ is Lord. When we pray for someone who's in some kind of bondage, we're saying to the powers, Jesus Christ is Lord. When we work with someone to, to have a marriage reconciled, we're saying Jesus Christ is Lord. When we serve the poor and marginalized, we're saying to the powers, Jesus Christ is Lord. When we refuse to live with bitterness and resentment, we're saying to the powers, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus invites us to live in the reality that the kingdom of God is already here. And we are to live in the fullness of it, that Jesus has disarmed the powers. And although the powers might be active still, they have been disarmed. And through his spirit and through the kingdom of God, we're able to live in a new reality, not having these powers trap us. We're able to live free. And when we attach our lives to Jesus, and when we trust in Jesus, and when we are baptized, reminding us that we belong to Jesus, all of a sudden the powers are disarmed. And the powers don't have the authority that they used to have over you. They don't have the power that they used to have over you because your life is now attached to Christ, the victorious one. And his victory becomes your victory. Let's pray together. Let's have our prayer team, uh, our worship team come forward. We're going to take communion together. I want to invite those who are going to be offering the bread and the cup to come to the table. And I can't think of a better way to close a message than to take communion. Because communion is a meal that celebrates the victory of Jesus. I want you to just close your eyes for one moment. Maybe you came in here to church today, powers coming against you, feeling in bondage and trapped, and looking for Jesus to set you free. One of the ways that he sets us free is through his forgiveness and through his grace. And when we come to communion, we are receiving his grace over condemnation, receiving his compassion over self-hatred. We're saying, Jesus, you have destroyed the powers and disarmed the powers. And I take this bread and I dip it in this cup as a reminder that you are victorious And because you are victorious, I am victorious as well. Where do you need God's power today? Where do you need his strength today? Where do you need his authority today? 
power of the Holy Spirit is here to set us free. Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. And Lord, we celebrate the good news that on the cross, our sins weren't just forgiven. You were disarming powers and principalities. And Lord, one day, the powers and principalities will finally be dispersed. One day, you will reign fully and finally. And Lord, until that day happens, may we live in the authority that you've given us and the power that you've given us and the strength that you've given us and the grace that you've given us. So we come to this table of grace and mercy saying thank you. Thank you for doing what we could not do in our own strength. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Paul is saying, you're proclaiming the Lord's victory. His death, that's where victory is found. So we just don't take the bread and the cup to say, oh, he died for us. We take the bread and the cup to be reminded he is the victorious one. And so every time from this point on, as God reminds you, when you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, You're not just saying, Lord, I remember what you've done. You're also saying, Lord, you are victorious. Victorious over the world. Victorious over the powers. Victorious over the attacks of the evil one. Victorious over all of the issues that we face in the world. You are victorious. And may that victory be embodied in my life. May I flesh that out to the world. Your victory. And so I want to invite our prayer team to come to my left. One of the ways that the power of Jesus fills us is through prayer and by receiving prayer. I believe when we receive prayer, that there is a unique anointing and application of God's power to our lives. When we say, I need prayer, I need help, I need strength, and we're humble and vulnerable enough to do that, God fills us, God strengthens us, He gives us grace. And so if you today have been experiencing the powers coming against you, setbacks and challenges, wrestling with sin, wrestling with behaviors that have been destructive to yourself and destructive to others, and you just need God's power, our prayer team would love to pray for you for whatever need you have. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never said yes to Jesus, the truth of the matter is you're trapped. You are trapped. You are trapped. And Jesus wants to free you. And the way that Jesus frees you is through forgiveness. If you've never said yes to Jesus, you're trapped. There's no other way to say it. And yet, I know you want to be free. I know you want to be done with your bondage, but you're trapped. And no amount of strength, no amount of education, no amount of willpower is going to free you. You are trapped. But if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Open your hands to heaven just to receive a blessing. Our prayer team is here to pray for you. I want to just speak a word of blessing over everyone in this room. And may you be reminded when you go about your business this week 
when you watch the news and when trouble comes your way, may you remember Jesus Christ is victorious and we live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. But Lord, would you show us more of the already and may we live in that reality today. With your hands and your hearts in the posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness of the truth that Jesus is victorious. And may you live with great hope and strength and grace and love and mercy. And may you, may you proclaim to the world in words and in deed that Jesus Christ is the victorious one. I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful and the victorious name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.